0: Hey everyone, a little bit of a different intro this week. I wanted to preface our new stories instead of, you know, finding one of my own that relates. For the next three episodes, I'm interviewing friends with particular perspectives during the pandemic. I I know there's that intrinsic part of all of us that wants to... Well, I guess Gabe from The Office puts it best when he screams, Shut up about the sun! I know we all want to shut up about the pandemic. But I once shut it up about a trauma I endured. And my bones, and my tendons, and my skin kept the score. I don't think it's time to shut up. This is not to say all stories that need to be told are trauma- we need to remember, too, watching Mo Willems teach us how to draw at lunchtime doodles. Remember that? Remember when our elementary school principal was reading bedtime stories over live stream? I remember, without new movies to go see in the theater, having that aha moment of like, wait a second, my kids haven't seen The Sandlot? Are you kidding me, Smalls? And then there were the birthday parades. We meant well, didn't we? Some things do turn from endearing to annoying quite quick. All this to say, we all experienced a pandemic in a modernly functioning world. And we all navigated how terribly those two things mixed. Or how perfectly that oil-water mixing revealed truths and pauses and vulnerability in things. There are so many stories to tell. In this season of Queer Eye, they embraced it. Even season two of Cheer had to embrace it. So, so too can I. After all, for many of us, the most definitive, not supposed to happen in our lives has been the pandemic that changed everything. On my little show, so far I have three stories about the pandemic. One from an ICU nurse, one from a new mom, and one from a public school teacher. Please know your stories are as valuable as theirs. And the only thing I want more than you to know that is to have a place for you to tell that story if that felt right to you. This week, I talked with Rich an ICU nurse whose job pivoted in ways I couldn't conceptualize before our discussion. As we wrapped up, my producer thanked him and underscored how important was such a story, saying, you know, you've been invisible to us, but we knew we were supposed to honor you. And now I have a more tangible why. And this was a Yankee fan thanking a Red Sox fan, you guys. I I I think you should have seen it. Anyway, from finding nursing, to being pushed to his limits in nursing, to reaffirming how that push made him grow, here's Rich, my dear friend and humble hero.
1: That wasn't supposed to happen.
2: Thank you.
0: (laughs) You're welcome. Why did I say you're welcome? That sounded really corny. We're gonna have to cut some of it.
2: I say we leave it right in. (laughs) Corny the better. That way people know. Yep, that's Heather.
0: That's Heather. I was super nervous to have you come here because of that. I'm I'm pointing to the Yankees hat. (laughs) I've
2: I've looked at it at least three times now. And you know what? I use it as, as a little anger way to wake up. You oh. know what I mean? To keep my To keep, <laughs> to my keep energy. your energy yes. up,
0: yes. We've got a Boston <laughs> Red Sox fan here in the house. Uh, my <laughs> producer's shaking his head. <laughs> There's going to be a, a rumble after the mics get get shut. Yeah, speaking of staying awake, you just came off of an overnight shift.
2: Yes, 12 hours. And it's it's really not too bad. Um, it, it's definitely a, a weird... Uh, work schedule. It's not your typical nine to five. Yeah. But it's thirty six hours. It's twelve twelve hour shifts. So it's three days a week I work, and it definitely takes some adjusting. Yeah. Um. But I find that if I, you know, I've I figured out my sleep schedule. I sleep in out four hour breaks.
1: <laughs> wow. And
2: if I can, you know what I mean. If I'm going into a shift, I work. I sleep four hours. If I'm coming out of a shift, I typically sleep four hours. Or I come into a studio and talk on a <laughs> <laughs> on a podcast.
1: Those
2: those are the two things that I do after That's I come it. off a shift.
0: <laughs> I um, I'm going to lose listeners. They're going to be like, "How dare you make this ICU nurse stay up one more extra hour when he could be sleeping right
2: now?" No, this this honestly, with I mean, as you know, uh, I have three kids, and uh, sometimes. You know, coming home and coming right to sleep is not an option. Right. And, uh, you know, you just make it work. And yeah. right now, like, you know, as I'd mentioned, I'm wired. I'm, you know, I've got some coffee in me.
0: <laughs> so, speaking of these 12 hour shifts, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what a normal day in the ICU would have looked like pre pandemic?
2: Yes. Yes. So it was, it, it was beautiful. Um, I I have to give you a little intro before. Oh, please do. I I am an ICU nurse, um, but I was originally hired a little backwards. I was hired into a specialty of the ICU umbrella, mm-hmm. and um, that specific area is cardiothoracic care. So I was hired as a what's called a CT ICU nurse, cardiothoracic ICU nurse, right? Intensive care unit nurse, right? And so my normal day, pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, was um, we have seven beds on our floor. Mm -hmm. We had our assignment board. We had one desk, and we gave report. We ate lunch, everything at that one big long desk. And we never really took breaks. Right. We always saw our patients. We always were super, super attentive in the fact that we could always see them. And that was just our way. And that's how I've been learning how to be an ICU nurse over the past couple of years. So I would get reported said desk and I would see my patient. I'd be looking at the patient as I was getting report.
0: When you say looking at the patient, like in a room with them, like not...
2: So it was, I was sitting at a chair. There was a desk that we were talking at. Mm -hmm. There was a glass door and I could see into the patient's room. Into their room. room. And they were right there.
1: Yeah.
2: And so we... Would get report. I would kind of digest report over a cup of coffee. <laughs> we would go and introduce ourselves to the to the patient. The patient population that we took care of. They, you know, you would think that cardiothoracic surgery is something that um, needs to be almost always done right away. Our patients are people who have heart attacks, right? And so you think that needs to be taken care of right away, but it's it's not necessarily the case. A lot of the people we take care of. They had a heart attack. They had the immediate issue taken care of. Okay. And then they were sent home and then they were souped up and, you know, they were able to rest, rehabilitate. Right. Get out of that deconditioned being in the hospital feeling and then come back and get a surgery. So in a way it was an elective surgery.
0: Right. Well, they had to be um, healthy enough for the surgery right after the event- Probably not the most excellent time to exactly. have such a grueling surgery.
2: In an, in an ideal uh, scenario, we would kind of spruce them up a little bit, send them home, and yeah. then they would come back. And that's where people get the greatest outcomes uh, yeah, for their surgery. Yeah. So these people that we would take care of came into the hospital healthy. We would send them home healthy and with a brand new, um, I, I shouldn't say healthy in the fact that, you know, they needed open heart surgery. <laughs> right. Bes- besides that, I, of
0: course, <laughs> um, I understand. Yeah. But
2: they were they were physically able to walk in. You know, they obviously had would probably have some sort of uh, chest discomfort. But going into the hospital, knowing that they would be relieved of that chest discomfort, mm. and that was kind of our specialty. That was our bread and butter, and we would right. take care of just those people. And so we would send these people off. They were always super appreciative, and mm. and it was it was very. It, it still is, yeah. But I'm I'm am talking in the past, right? So it right, right. still is, but back then it also was enjoyable right, to take right. care of these uh, right. this patient population. So um, what did
0: care look like for somebody who just had a, a major open heart surgery? They are now your ICU patient for how long? F-
2: so over the course of our twelve hour shift, they would basically have surgery that day, yeah. And so I would come in at seven p.m. And they would still have the breathing tube in and they would still look pale from surgery because yeah. during surgery, they have to tech, they have to stop their heart. Oh. And so they come out cold and white and uh, not looking very lively. And oh. so over the next 12 hours, we spruce them up, we titrate their medications, we take certain medications away, we take certain tubes out, we take the breathing tube out, we get them up out of bed into the chair and... By 8 a.m. the next morning, the doctor is looking at this person that they just were basically, you know, inside. Right. And they, you know, they're, they look pretty rough. Right. But for the most part, they're, you know...
1: Functioning.
2: They're functioning. And yeah. so as a nurse, that's very rewarding. Wow. It's very rewarding in that this is what I did. Yeah. This person came in, they had an issue, um, and now, uh, you know, 10 hours before... They were, you know, pale. They had a breathing tube in. They were yeah. just coming out of surgery. They were in pretty yeah. rough shape. Yeah. And then over that 10-hour t- period, you spruce them up and they're sitting in a chair and talking to you. That's
0: kind of remarkable. Maybe I don't know enough about the, the medical field to know that, no, no, the human body can do that. I'm like, so, so you have to stop the heart. But you know, ten hours later, that, that human being can talk again. Uh? <laughs> like that yeah. seems remarkable. To yeah, me. and then
2: when your kids say, "My nose is stuffy. I can't go to school," you know, now get out of bed. You can get out of bed. Kid. Well, <laughs> nowadays
0: we cannot send our stuffy nose kids. <laughs> oh
2: to yes, cook. yes, of course, of course. <laughs> so that was so that was that was pre pandemic. Yeah. Um, you know, we definitely had a, a patient uh, population. Um little notorious throughout all hospitals that we're kind of the princesses. You know, we, we get the you know, we get the good patients. Yeah. You know, our, our our shifts are very are very structured. Yeah. You know, we gotta keep their potassium level at this, we gotta keep their blood pressure at this, we gotta keep this at this. You know, there's all these uh, different parameters that we gotta keep in very tight windows, otherwise, you know, the surgeon will yell at you <laughs> <laughs> or the the physician assistant will yell at you, why was this not? Corrected. Why am I not? So there's there's a lot of accountability, but after a while, you know, we have our emergencies, but they're all like I I joke around. They're planned emergencies. Oh, this person went back into a dysrhythmia. Let's do this, this, and this, and so you know, it becomes a specialty that we take care of. You know, and it was very nice. I have to say,
0: I know this doesn't pertain to cardiothoracic ICU, but um, just the I'm speaking of the way you're talking about ICU. So you hear that the person is uh, in critical condition, Mm -hmm. but it sounds like the way you talk about ICU and your ability to know what your job is after the, the human being comes to ICU, your job is to stabilize that critical condition that they're in, right? So you didn't see that as chaotic or emergent. You saw it at, like you said, planned emergent, like you're like, okay, I know what this means, I can make this person stable again. This that, is our that's outcome. what an ICU felt like.
2: Yes, this is this is our outcome. Obviously, there is some chaos that happens in the ICU. Sure. And I didn't always get you know these these open heart patients. Of course, we would get some overflow. There would be some people that would come in with you know um, some sort of congestive heart failure from the ICU that needed to be you know rehabilitated right, a bit, and right. so we get we get overflow from them, but most of them would be heart patients.
0: Just sounds like you sort of understood that you could get these people out of ICU. Yeah. That's the uh sentiment I'm hearing. Like yes. they're here, we do this, we tinker, and then they leave the ICU. Yes. That seems to change.
2: Yeah. So so obviously after the pandemic, um we no longer were just specialized. We actually were more merged with the regular ICU. Okay. And so we started, and I say we as in because there were, you know, the special group that we were, were probably about between eight on each shift. So about 16 nurses total. Okay. We we needed to help because yeah. the ICU was then inundated and technically we we're part of the ICU.
0: Right, right.
2: And so it was kind of like these people that we worked with all these years they, they needed help. Yeah. And then all of these cases I had mentioned before that were semi-elective. Right. You know, they became very, a little more selective on who absolutely needed to come into the hospital because then it became a race against resources.
1: Oh.
2: And nurses were resources. Doctors were resources. We had some of our, our team, our cardiothoracic team, helping the intensivists which are the right. doctors for the ICU there's a right. separ- you know there's separate doctor groups coming in to help them just do you know put in central lines put in you know devices do you know minimal you know uh minimally invasive procedures that can be kind of Done by any general, or sometimes it was right in their wheelhouse, putting in central lines yeah. and stuff like that, and chest tubes and stuff. So, yeah. obviously, it became chaos as you can imagine. Yeah. And you know, a lot of that patient to nurse connection started happening, or didn't was was always there. The best way to describe it is it, it. There was a lot of separation that kind of happened, and that really wasn't helped by the fact that um, afterwards most of the patients that came into the hospital we had to treat as if they had covid oh until they were until, proved otherwise right, right but then of course the nature of the of the virus was they may be negative or even asymptomatic yeah. of covid so yeah. sometimes it would be that two week period where they could have it but aren't showing symptoms or may right. not even be positive right in some cases right so we basically had to wear our N95s, which I, I I was about to explain what an N95 is, but I think at this point everybody knows, <laughs> right? It's a specialized right. mask, you right. know, to filter out basically everything.
0: Mm-hmm. You
2: know, when I say chaos, we would go into work and there would be this hallway. And that was kind of like the dress up hallway.
0: Oh, yes. You told me you wanted to talk about like the difference between like how you dressed in an ICU setting pre-COVID and after. Can you elaborate on like how your dress changed?
2: Yeah. Yes. So there's different isolation situations that occur. There's standard precautions that we do with everybody. If we're handling some sort of fluid or something, we just wear gloves, we wash our hands. Right. We don't necessarily have to wear a mask. This is all pre-COVID. Right um we always wear a mask now right and um that's that's kind of standard precautions there's droplet precautions which is for like the flu where you do have to wear a mask right. you have to anywhere anytime that you are 3 feet within the, z- the area of mm-hmm. the person who say has the flu or some sort of droplet precaution you'll need to have you know a protective mask okay and a 95 preferably And we would also have eye protection, a gown, and gloves. Okay,
1: yeah.
2: And so then there was regular contact where it would just be a gown and gloves. Mm. And so those would be kind of like the GI bugs and stuff like that.
1: Right, right.
2: And then there's obviously airborne, which is if you are in the room with that person, that's like tuberculosis. Yeah. Where their little spores are so small that they can float on dust particles. And so you need to be protected and you need to be if you are in the room. Period. You need to have your N95. You need to have, and so these are all kind of the pre-COVID isolations that we had.
0: The state, like the the different levels of like how you would suit up for yes. that particular
2: exactly patient. And so, and so technically, you know, COVID is kind of a droplet. Okay. We elevated it to a airborne because it became so contagious. Right you don't know how far someone can sneeze type of thing. Right, right. You know, I guess they established at some point in the world that three feet was how far someone, an average person would sneeze. Right. Um,
0: They've never seen me sneeze. Woo!
2: (laughs) You know what, me too. Me too. Everybody in our huge ward definitely knows when when Rich sneezes because, uh, and even in the house, it's...
0: It's like an ab workout for me. Like, I do like a full crunch, like, ah, uh.
1: I have. I have to
2: take a nap after my sneezes. <laughs> and so afterwards, you know, just the just the gowning up and the gowning down. So pre-shift, we would go into COVID units. Okay. And so it was kind of, I almost want to compare it to like paratroopers, like gearing up before they go into. Right.
0: No, I get that.
2: And yeah. so we were all in this hallway and we're all kind of, like joking around and like you know trying to like amp each other up there was people yeah. physically showing us how to get prepared yeah. you know we had to put on double gloves it was just in short it was it was amped up yeah um as if we were going into some sort of airborne thing because at first we didn't know how contagious or really what this what this virus was going to do yeah and so i mean number 1 it was terrifying yeah you know cuz you don't know what you're going to bring you know, home into your car. It's like, is it on my hands? Did I wash my hands enough? That type yeah. of thing. And so this this hallway yeah. was kind of like the entryway. It would be all jokes and, and jovial. And kind of
0: love that. You need that morale. You know.
2: And then when you got in there, when I talk about the separation, it was kind of what you would see in the movies where it was like you know chaos, tense.
0: Yeah. You
2: know, nurses. Like a You're,
0: sci-fi movie, like a like zombie outbreak? Like. A little
2: zombie ma- mixed up with like M.A.S.H. where it was like chaos. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Where, because, you know, also on top of all that, there was, you know, resources. And so you go through these doors and you kind of get that terrifying breeze because they're all negative pressure. And so the air has to kind of suck into the ward. It can't obviously, you know, uh, it has to have like what's, you know, a negative pressure, so right. a little bit of a vacuum, so that the air, if you open the door, the air doesn't blow out. It blows, right? It sucks, it sucks I, in. Okay. Yeah. So you kind of almost get like this a little bit of a pull into doom, you know, and um, <laughs>
0: that's terrifying. And when
2: you and when you it's get a in, laugh. Yeah, and when you get in, the person that you're facing and talking to is the only person that you can see. I mean, with these masks and the gown, you you had like tunnel vision. You mm. physically could not see. Mm. Some people had to wear um, what they call pappers, which don't ask me what it stands for, but in in effect, it's just a like a like a bubble, like a fish bubble, like one of those. Okay. Old, yep. Old timey. Uh,
0: it looks like a like um, what we thought. Maybe astronauts would wear uh, not astronaut. I was just going to say a deep sea a deep sea diver's suit, (laughs) but like steampunk. Yeah.
2: (laughs) So some people who maybe had like uh, large beards or some uh, condition where they couldn't wear an N95, Mm. maybe they had sensitive skin or whatever, they would wear these pappers. Wow. And so that would give them, you know, they'd walk around with like a little fan. And, uh, you know, just hope that their battery didn't die.
0: And this is at a local hospital in Hudson Valley, New York. This isn't like Manhattan.
2: This is like... Actually a large uh, hospital in Dutchess County.
0: You would think, oh, but that's like in the cities where it's really bad. It's like, no, you have to wear this stuff even at your
2: local... This is a community hospital. Yeah. We are still a community hospital. I still see people that I you know walk down the street and see i yeah. you know unfortunately even even in our small town that we live in yeah. there's there's many people that i have that weird little you know it, i don't want to call it a wink but a you know a little look like you know i know you in a different way than oh, than yeah. living in yeah <laughs> but um so i mean you go into this you go into the ward and um you have your three patients as I had mentioned before, you know, I joke about you know being a princess. Yeah. Um, we had our one patient, and and we that's that was our only concern the entire. Wow. It was um, what
0: nice care, you know, to have just that one.
2: It was. It was, and yeah. you know, it's we still get sparkles. We get yeah. still, we still get sparkles. <laughs> We're still kind of in the middle of this pandemic, as far as my story goes. <clears throat> but um, you know, when it had just started, it was you're at least getting two patients at least. Sometimes it was three and sometimes it was four. And um, as far as the care goes, you know, of course, us as nurses, we're not going to, we kind of, we kind of idealize where we're going to take breaks and where we can kind of take breaks. And what was scary was there's, there's really no break in, in sight. It was just like to ask somebody for help. You would say, Hey, do you have a minute? Yeah you knew not to ask that because nobody oh, had a minute right and it was chaos yeah. where you literally had to look at each patient say what is the most important thing that I can do for this patient to help them to live and because
0: you've got to go to the next patient because within seconds because
2: or, yeah. not only you know where I'm, where where my mind I mean this Pandemic, I think definitely made me a better nurse in my, you know, multitasking and yeah. ability to kind of be in the moment, take care of what needs to be done and yeah. move on. Yeah. Do this helps, you know what I mean? And in between all of that, getting meds, helping somebody else out who says, listen, I really need help. Yeah. And so you just, you have your three people and you just, what I say is I ping pong.
1: Yeah. And
2: I'm just, okay, what do I can do here? Done here. What can I do here? Done here. And so when I, when I talk about, you know like chaos you know whereas before if i noticed that somebody really needed to pick me up like mm. some some old older guy who came in who hasn't shaved in like 5 days mm. i'd shave him
1: oh well, yeah because you yeah. know
2: what that little bit of like a mental victory to them right. was was important and then some people they're like oh i feel better i'm whatever. and then all of a sudden they're like i'm ready for discharge right they're vital and it snow yeah. and it snowballs yeah. and it snowballs and what i did i absolutely Hated about the the pandemic is I was I wasn't always able yeah. to do those little things yeah. to get people's spirit up. Yeah. And in these wards, there's no windows. You know, they can't even see outside. You now, of course, being a nurse, you get a very um odd sense of humor, and you're like, Man, it's like a casino in here. I can't see any clocks, I can't see any things. It's so noisy. Yeah. You know, I can only concentrate on the one thing that I'm looking at you know to say that it was chaos is is a bit of an understatement. Yeah. You know, um on top of that people are 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 dying. They're they're passing. Yeah. So despite doing all these things, um most of these people are have a breathing tube in, they're sedated
1: mm.
2: just to kind of give their bodies a break
1: mm. from
2: overbreathing because, you know, the virus mainly attacked the lungs. Right. And it did a lot of other you know, crazy, you know, things to the body causing blood clots. It had, you know, ma- obviously mainly being the lungs, but, you know, a virus that's, you know, that's similar to in, in characteristics to like the flu that also yeah. messes with your right. your coagulopathy, which gives you a co- coagulopathy basically. Right, right. You know, you have, a you know, your your blood just isn't the same. Right to put it as as simple as I possibly can it's, <laughs> is what I'm trying to do, and so that's more or less what a what an after shift kind of looked like, where it was or sorry, where after basically during during I would say yeah. COVID what it would look like yeah and you know there would be those shifts where you would get those you'd have your little mini victories people would be able to have the breathing tube taken out and everything like that yeah. but it you know at the height of the pandemic it wasn't just this one ward either. It it seemed to every day get a little bit worse, and bottom line was we then had to open up six more of these wards. Six, six. So in, we would we would, in
0: Dutchess County, New York, not yes. Manhattan. Yes, we needed six ICU.
2: Yes, and in each, COVID wards, and at and at each point, I think at one point, I think we had in the ICU we had close to sixty intubated, sedated people and once they're intubated their their mortality rates go through the roof yeah it was really grim and it was it was one of those things that kind of swept us and every week it seemed to get worse and worse and worse yeah you would have your little victories people would get out Mm -hmm. and on top of that these people can't see their families either right you know to protect the community Because you don't know if they're going to come in, if they're going to wear their mask properly. And if that family member doesn't, oh, well, now they have, you know, basically the worst version of this. You know, the hospital had to cut visiting hours. We were giving uh, people... ability to see their family members via zoom which you know obviously zoom be zooming people became the you know a very popular thing during the pandemic but we utilized that so that people could at least see their loved ones yeah honestly amongst all the things that had to be the absolute worst
1: Mm. is
2: hearing is hearing the family talk and you give the family the best guidance that you can yeah but on top of just bottom line not having time to Super right. explain things right you say, "Here's your loved one, um, you know you explain a few things, and you know their loved one can't necessarily talk either, not always, obviously, yeah. if they have the breathing tube in they're not talking right. right and so those situations were were super difficult, especially if kids were involved
0: can you if you feel comfortable, we talked a little bit about how you're, you know, how the outfitting changed and how the way you interacted with a patient having to go into the negative pressure rooms and how that all changed. You once told me one, one time hanging out as friends that your day-to-day care changed. Again, I'm, I'm not a medical professional. It, it sounded to me almost like hospice care. The way you said you were kind of reduced to really only keeping a patient comfortable. And can you talk a little bit about what that was like?
2: So we've changed how we've how we care for COVID patients. Initially, if people came into the hospital and they had COVID, or they came in COVID positive, it almost was clinically obvious. Right. And when I use the word clinically, I mean they're breathing hard. They're very symptomatic. Right. Um, they have a characteristic cough. Their oxygen level, uh, we call it the um the pulse ox.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Their pulse ox is normally should be above ninety five. Yeah. They're walking around with a pulse ox in the sixties or lower. Wow. Which is unheard of. How are they
0: even walking around?
2: <laughs> exactly they compensatory mechanisms somehow, (laughs) amazingly. And it obviously comes crashing down.
1: Yeah. So
2: clinically, they look very sick and they almost look as though, you know, they're coughing. They clinically look as though they have COVID. And that's kind of where we say we need to send a test out to confirm this. But, you know, even if it comes back negative, we're going to treat this like it looks. Right. right. You know? Mm -mm. So initially... What we would do is if they had a um, pulse ox of less than 85% and they were in respiratory distress, we would put an ET tube in them because they are going downhill.
0: Mm, okay.
2: And so what this became is we had ice—and once they're intubated um, with the, uh, with a breathing tube in, yeah. once they're intubated— they're going to the ICU. They require ICU care. Right.
0: That that mechanism requires you can't, ICU. That's not inpatient like you can't, you know, yeah, you can't triage. S-
2: exactly. You can't send that to, you know, they can't go to the nursing home with a breathing tube right, in, right. Um, in their mouth at least. So that was what we did to people who would normally come in. And what that did is that created so many people who are intubated. And so... As we started to really learn more about the pandemic, we realized that this was the thing that would create a situation for hospice. Once they got that breathing tube in, oh, right. it increased their mortality. Right. I don't exactly know the percentage, right. but greater, much greater right. than fifty percent. Right. And so we didn't know that back then. Right. And so we would normally say, "Okay, you're in respiratory distress. You're sat. You're. Right. We say you're satting less than." Um, eighty-five percent, which means your pulse ox reading is less than eighty-five percent. You're going downhill. We got to put a breathing tube in you.
0: And And, that would have been a normal pre, you know, like yes, this is what we do to humans. We give them that, and and that wasn't necessarily a death sentence back in the day, like pre-COVID. That was a a means to an end,
2: and that was that was a means to giving you a chance for your body to recoup whatever right. was causing your respiratory distress and then boop, boop. and then we would take the tube out and you would be on I, your- I don't want to say on your way <laughs> right. but, but obviously right. when you're in that type of condition that it requires a lot of rehab
1: right.
0: but
2: that would be normally what you would what would happen
0: so now covid now
2: covid hit and we are now realizing that once you intubate somebody who is say elderly yeah. with covid and they typically have what we call comorbidities, diabetes. Uh-huh. Um, even drinking alcohol became a comorbidity. Wow. Because we had a lot of people who would go into alcohol withdrawal. And then on top of dealing with COVID, that would be a separate thing. So huh. so sometimes even just drinking alcohol um, hmm. became a comorbidity. So any sort of other disease okay. process, um, if you had those... You know it became a situation that you were describing as kind of a hospice situation,
1: right.
2: you know unfortunately, there was at least two situations where I had to have a very serious conversation with very close friends whose parents oh who had comorbidities, yeah, and they and and they were thinking what would happen would be what normally happens, yeah. which was okay, they're in trouble they got the breathing tube in but they're going to get it out. Yeah. They're they're only 50 something years old. Right. And um unfortunately for one of them, you know, I had to talk to one of my one of my good friends and um you know, it was it was their parent and they were relatively young. Yeah. And they they didn't make it and that was a terrible that was probably my least favorite part.
1: Yeah.
2: Um is is trying to explain that, a situation that should normally go okay. Right. And it it ended poorly. Yeah. I was lucky enough to have a friend who, who went the other way. And I said, you know what? You really dodged a bullet.
1: Yeah, You yeah. really,
2: really, really dodged the bullet. But yeah. unfortunately, as you had mentioning before about you a know, hospice situation, that was most of the people who were intubated. Most. And so when you get three people that you're taking care of that are intubated, they're sedated, your spirit is kind of lost because you're like, uh, I'm gonna take care of these people to the end and i'm using all these resources yeah and you know it is it is it does sound a little morbid because these are all human beings these are all people who had you know who were probably walking the streets a week before right but you know little did we know that you know putting that breathing tube in quickly um intervening so quickly with trying to save them was was looking back was kind of a death sentence.
0: Is there any data to suggest that now we don't put it in so quickly and people survive? Or
2: so absolutely. Oh, so now instead of having these, you know, these multiple ICUs that we had to create because yeah. we had so many ICU patients. Yeah. Number one, we reduced the load on the ICU by not having by not. Intubating as many people, right. we have a lot of non-invasive oxygenating mechanisms. Me- for, yeah, okay, I'm, sure. Yeah, I'm losing. <laughs> I'm losing the word for it. Uh-oh. But basically, it's you know. You're on
0: 13 hours bi- now.
2: <laughs> bi- BiPAP, CPAP. Yeah. Um, there's something called high flow, which is just something that basically shoots a lot of oxygenated air up your nose.
1: Mm.
2: Um, and so we utilize those. And if people are in respiratory distress and we we wait longer in yeah. short, because we know that by waiting longer, yeah, they look like they're really going downhill, but until they um, hit a certain point, which is kind of up to the doctor's, yeah. you know, I, I don't want to say doctor's discretion. They, everything they do is based off of research and, right, you know, right. evidence-based um, practice, But at that point that they determine that they need to put the tube in Mm. um, is a little more carefully chosen. Mm. And because of that, we're now able to have less ICU patients and we we can choose from a lot of different nurses to take care of these people as opposed to just the ICU pack of nurses that... (laughs) only can right. take care of who are the people who can only take care of the uh, intubated patients because the
0: specialty that ICU nurse so now the resources aren't spread as thin you all aren't spread as thin because some of your coworkers in other wings of the hospital can take are, on some of that load
2: are able to take a load and yeah. you know you've you've got to you've got to thank research and you've got to you know trust uh, I, everyone's going to hate me. you got to trust administration sometimes. <laughs> and they look at the big picture and yeah. they definitely deserve a thank you. Yeah. Because if we kept doing what we were doing, it's, this is still happening, but it would happen even further. And that's nursing, nurses' you know, burnout.
0: Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about nurse burnout? I mean, when we talked, uh, I think it was, you know, since we coach, you know, you coach baseball, I got stuff. Oh, it was was probably in the spring. Um, You talked about like for a while there, you know, you'd go to work, you'd have your three patients. The next day, those three, you know, would be gone, if you will, right? They would pass. What was that mental load like for you to just know that you're going to have an exhausting day and then the, the person's probably gonna be gone. Like, did that burn you out on a mental level or was it the physicality of the overwhelming part of your job that burnt you out? Or was it both?
2: I have to I was gonna say it, it absolutely you have to be both. Yeah. Because you know, with these people who are, you know, who are on ventilators, intubated, they need to be turned. You need to turn and position them. Can you explain what that
0: means, turn like
2: so if you lay in a particular spot for a long time. What happens is you develop pressure points mm. wherever you're laying. Um, your body naturally, while you sleep, while you sit here and talk to your friend, <laughs> you kind of shift. You make movements. But yeah. if you are in, if you are sedated,
0: you're not making those shifts. You and are movements. not
2: making those slight shifts, movements. You're not shifting your hips, um, and so you'll develop uh, pressure ulcers. Mm. And so that's where you'll, you know, you'll hear about, you know you know, different facilities and their pressure ulcers. It's, it's an indicator of poor care right. in some, in some uh, instances. Mm. And so every two hours in the hospital, if somebody cannot move themselves, so if they're sedated, yeah. some people are paralyzed, right. we, have to, we have to turn and position them mm. um, every two hours so that obviously those, you know, pressure injuries don't happen. Right. You get a pressure injury, then that's another problem. Yeah. It's a source of infection so then you've got more issues going on. Right. So in general we try to avoid that.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: so during during a shift it's it, it can be physically demanding. Um some of these patients are, you know, are large right. just to to say, you know, frankly. Right. And so it can be it can be taxing on your body yeah. that you're physically doing all this work. And some, you know, sometimes if you, you know, are physically drained and you're doing work it's a little rewarding to know that there's something promising at the end of it for instance if i if you were building a chicken coop for your chickens or a dog house for your dog it can be physically demanding to cut the wood and put right. all the boards together but at the end you've got a dog house you've got right. something you've yeah. you've worked towards something and with the you know obviously with these covid patients it would be super disheartening and you yeah. can see where i'm going with this yeah. where you do all this work, you try to do all these little things. You try to make sure that they're shaved and looking nice, even though they're sedated and they don't know what's you know, what they look like. You try to do all these tiny little things to take care of them and dignity. Give them, you know. And or or sometimes there wouldn't even be time for that. Sometimes you would just be able to care and give them their meds. And then to find that the next week they wouldn't be there anymore. Yeah. And it wouldn't be for nothing. You know, like yeah. you, I know deep down that it, it's not not for no, you know. Yeah. I don't want to. That's poor English. Right. It's not for nothing. <sighs> um, but yeah. it's it it is disheartening, and it becomes numbing to the point where you almost accept it more so than we would before. You know, there was definitely a baseline of you're in the ICU. There is the, always the possibility that you know, bad things can happen and bad things did
0: happen. Right In your patient population, you might deal with death a little more than, you know, my ear surgeon. Like he didn't expect me to die after my ear surgery. He comes in, he fixes my, well, he doesn't, but he (laughs) he fixes my vertigo. He tried his best. Um, It's me, it's not him. It's me, it's not you. How, Um, How dare you. In his patient population, that's just not... Right, you know, yeah. not, but yeah, you had that understanding, In your patient population, being an ICU nurse, there's always going to be that level of um, possible plausible death, but it was paramount. Yeah, in in-, co-
2: in COVID land is what we what we refer to it. In COVID land, it was um, it was expected, Ugh. and so it almost it almost flipped where where most of the time in ICU before everybody would generally do somewhat well. Yeah. Um sometimes we'd be sending them to rehabs and nursing homes and you know, but they would be living, they'd be able to have some sort of functional life afterwards. Yeah. Whereas with covid it that that wasn't the case. Most people were dying. Yeah. Um, and it was it was a hey, you know, Mr. so and so made it. And it would be kind of our little celebration. Yeah. And so we would focus on that
1: yeah.
2: and that would help us, you know, that would help us spiritually. But yeah. I mean, it became, it became numbing to the point where we would expect, we would expect people, you know, we would, we would look at people and be like, oh, this just isn't going to happen.
1: Oh gosh.
2: And so that was, yeah. that was, that's kind of the difficult part Yeah, as well. I hate, I hate to say like, oh, that was difficult. There's.
0: It was they, all. They diffi- were.
2: They were all difficult. Yeah. So. Um, yeah.
0: Did you lose colleagues? I don't mean to death, but to that burnout, did absolutely. people go? I'm out.
2: Like, absolutely. Oh wow. I want to say, I want to say the original. You know, I I call it the original crew of of CTICU.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, a lot of them. Um, I want to say I work with two of them right. from the original sixteen. About 16 or so. We'll say, you know, yeah. we'll say about 16 night and day shift. Yeah. I want to say probably two on nights, maybe three or four from days. And so that's more than half <sighs> of my original crew. Like, crew. Yeah, yeah. I mean, granted, we merged, we've we've since completely merged with mm-hmm. ICU now. Mm-hmm. Um, And so, you know, we have our own, we have our, our different crew. And so, you know, it's with With merging, there was new challenges and and um, you know, and i I found it you know uh, pleasurable enough to obviously stay. stay yeah. but a lot of a lot of our um, crew has has moved on yeah. has retired,
1: oh. and that even
2: goes for ICU, not just for the people in the cardiothoracic right. Uh, ICU right. And so that became um, a big issue on top of trying to find all these new nurses. We've got our existing nurses saying, I can't, I can't, can't do this, do this anymore. anymore.
0: Did you ever feel that way? Did you ever look at your wife and go, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I got to, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll go nurse at a pediatric office or something. <laughs>
2: right? It's funny. It's funny you say that. I actually also work at a high school.
0: Oh yeah, that's and, right. Yes, <laughs> That's right.
2: Um, but that's, that's a per diem game. <laughs> um, to answer your question, I did. Yeah. I did, but I don't think those words really ever came out in, you know, to to my wife. Yeah. Because I kind of already figured out what it was that I was going to do, not to pat myself on the back, but I I think I just said, "You know what? This is a means for me to support my family." Yeah. Every nurse, you know, obviously has that passion yeah. that they've um that they have. I still do have that passion. Yeah and there's definitely difficult parts where you're you're saying, you know, I need, you know, passion ain't going to cut it this shift. <laughs> I'm, I'm here for the paycheck. Right. Um, right. Right. You know, to be blunt. But uh I I did think of that. But yeah. it's it's definitely shifted my mind, my mind process where I don't necessarily identify as I am only a nurse. I took a step back and i realized that i'm a human being and yeah. i have interests and i should start you know seeing all these people obviously pass and yeah. so many in droves yeah um you know i took a step back personally and i said yeah. you know i got to start i don't know doing something on my own yeah. and that's where where baseball kind <laughs> of you know i started yeah. you know coaching baseball taking more interest in my kids um things um, in their sports yeah and even in their schooling
0: I know thank you for coming to the PTA meetings yes. you're one of the <laughs> one of two dads we really appreciate it. us guys got to represent but <laughs> that's a beautiful sentiment that you know through all the the chaos uh, the horror um, the the disheartening sort of like a dejection right you had that mirror moment, if you will, and said, well, it could have been me in one of those ICU beds. So what else do I do? I'm not just an ICU nurse. I am... A league director of, 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 you know, the baseball. And, and I am a dad to these great kids. And softball,
2: I am, too. Softball, too. Softball is important, too, Heather. Uh,
0: <laughs> I coach the softball team, you all. Man. Some of the softball moms listening are like, never mind, we don't want Heather to be the coach. She doesn't even think of our daughters during... Fires.
2: <laughs> I'll, t- I'll talk to yeah. the league director. Yeah.
0: Did you always want to be a nurse?
2: Um, No. No, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking back at our whole discussion here. A lot of it is kind of, you know, is, is kind of grim and I'd, I'd like to give you like a, a great, uh, explanation, but at least I'll, I'll, I guess, make it a little upbeat here. There you go. Where, um, originally, you know, my plan was to, to become a doctor. Mm. And so my, my story as a nurse kind of ends in a failure. Right. Um, I I had originally decided that I wanted to do medicine my senior year of high school, which wasn't very impressive to colleges. <laughs> They're like this jerk. What? They're like, like, you didn't
0: even take AP Chem. Like, who are you? They're like,
2: <laughs> this guy for one year thinks that he can just pull, you know, and I I did have great grades uh-huh. for that one year. Yeah. yeah, yeah, And he thinks that he can get into, you know, whatever. Yeah. You know, um, long story short with that, I had gone to SUNY Cobleskill. They had a bridge program to Cornell. Mm-hmm. I got a degree from Cornell. Um and I had okay grades. Yeah, they were just okay. Yeah, which means that I'm going to go out of the country if I wanted to become a doctor. <laughs> but you know, yeah. I had met my wife uh, back then, obviously just my girlfriend. Yeah, and we ended up uh, becoming a little more serious. And I made a family decision where yeah. I was like, I need to find something that I can do that is in this country, yeah. you know, I like to say that I made a choice for a family. Yeah. And I realized that if I moved away, that I would be, say, a 45-year-old guy just starting a family. Maybe, which, yeah. Which, I, obviously, you know, I've, a lot of people, you know, go through stages in their life and that's what they want to do. Yeah. I didn't want to do that. Right. So right. I, chose, I chose family and that's where I landed with nursing. Yeah. Where at first I will totally admit I was that smug guy that was like, I should be a friggin' doctor. Uh, and then and then <laughs> and then uh you know it's it, it you've slowly realized that that's really what you wanted to do to begin with. At least that's how I feel. I look at what doctors Say do more. now. Yeah. I I realize what doctors do and I realize what nurses do. Yeah. And I always thought that the nurses were kind of the doers, the doctors were kind of the Orderers, which yeah, yeah. which, in a traditional sense, that's exactly what they yeah. do. I'm not saying anything against doctors. Right, I right. think I, the hospital doesn't run without them. Right. And we absolutely need them. Right. What I personally prefer to do is- The type of- Is I, the doing.
1: Yeah.
2: And then also on top of that- I can do the thinking as an ICU nurse. You demand a level of respect yeah. where if they don't respect you in your room and your patient, which it is your room, yeah. this this is the nurse's room, the nurse's. Pre- if you don't respect that, you can you can leave the room <laughs> respectfully, nicely. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. there's definitely some administration things <laughs> things that that tend to happen, but um, yeah. there have you know I've I've definitely thrown doctors out of rooms. I I don't think there's an ICU nurse in this world that hasn't. Thrown a doctor out of the room.
0: I think that's beautiful because that's so the passion of like, that's your patient. Like the doctor like has that like surgical and, you know, that other brain. But you're like, this is my patient who I'm like, I got this. You got to leave. It. Yeah, you got to leave. leave. I have a thing going.
2: <laughs> There's something going on here. Yeah. Knowing you, with, that
0: makes more sense that you're the nurse. The, the with, patients need you. With,
2: with that said, obviously, <laughs> I absolutely respect all the doctors that I work with. <laughs> and, and most of the time, it's kind of a joking, like, you're driving me nuts. Too many back and forth orders. Yeah. Let me just fix this. And, you know, yeah. but... Um, to kind of uh, wrap up, you know, why I became a nurse, it, it almost, I kind of fell into it. Yeah. And um, it was a family decision that I had made and yeah. I, you know, I, you know, I can provide for my family and I can have a family too. Yeah, yeah. And so, yes. and so it became a clear choice and it almost became an easy choice after a while. And yeah. I, I honestly wish I were to get into it a little bit earlier and- I don't want to say waste that time in Cornell because then I would have never met Ashley.
0: Yeah, there you go. So. <laughs> I love how you called it like it was due to a failure, you know, the, the the failure to, you know, become a doctor. And one of the reasons I even wanted to start this podcast, my thought was like the, the failure quote uh, moment in your life or the thing that should not have happened moment in your life sometimes makes you turn and and do a thing that is like uh, uh, oh okay you know and exactly i i love that even after a pandemic that you did not sign up for. You did not sign up to be a nurse knowing like well pandemics happen every 3 or 6 years. I'm and sure and you're was, still in the and you're still in it. I'm
2: sure there was a clause somewhere. <laughs> they they had a you know that's an ironclad contract. That I'm sure they had me sign. No. But.
0: They were like they, they were like, you know, well he didn't read the fine print. There was going to be a pandemic in 2020. <laughs> and
2: you must you must yeah. come to work. No no flipping uh <laughs> No flipping professions.
0: <laughs> Being on the inside of the front lines of, a, of this pandemic, is there anything you feel you've learned or was revealed to you about the healthcare system or about the way things are done or the way you as a team work together that is hopeful or, or, or needs yeah. room to grow? or, or
2: there's, I Maybe mean,
0: we could end on that.
2: <laughs> you know, it's, it, there's, there's, there, is some, there is some hope. You know, I don't. I don't want to necessarily make any sort of comments about uh, about like the vaccine and everything. There's obviously been a lot of um, you know discra- different thoughts, right. I should right. say about that. Um, but I can say clinically,
1: mm-hmm.
2: from from you know a point of view where it's something that I see personally. A lot of the people who were coming in, mm-hmm. who were vaccinated,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I think had a better chance to right. make it out of the. Out of the uh, the right. ICU,
1: right.
2: you know, there, if you if you think about it, we had five or six ICUs,
1: yeah,
2: and now we're operating out of one, right? And so I think I think there's a lot of changes. Number one, as I had mentioned before, we're not quick to just intubate people, right? Right. Um, I think a, a small part of that is the vaccine, mm-hmm. and so you know, without without going into any other you know, big, uh, you know, debate or anything along yeah, those lines yeah. or any sort of, I, I think in general, I'm, I'm glad that I got the vaccine yeah. in that respect. Cause I feel, and it's funny, I did get the, I did get COVID, uh, two weeks ago. Yeah, I know. Two weeks ago. And it was like
0: a head cold for you.
2: I've, and, and <laughs> you know what? I had a runny nose and it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about being a princess. <laughs> um It was a terrible runny nose. Um I think also our ICU in general has gotten better.
0: Yes. This is yeah.
2: I think I think we've become a little more prepared for for May Day. You know, if if anything worse were to come, yeah. um we are half prepared. For that yeah. type of chaos, right? And you know, even even growing up, I had two friends mm-hmm. that were within my close knit uh, group of friends that went into the military. Mm-hmm. And a part of me is like, man, they fought in you know Af- in Afghanistan. Yeah. yeah. And you know, a part of me feels as though I I haven't given anything. Yeah. You know, and I felt like even though you know one of my friends jokes around that he he was working in a warehouse and. He, you know, fought the war by moving some boxes around. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, um, yeah. you know, one of my other friends was in the army and yeah. he really was on the front lines. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, part of me feels as though I I missed out up until about, you know, the beginning of this pandemic where yeah. I'm like, I don't even know what this thing is that I'm jumping into. Yeah. But I'm doing backstrokes in something that's killing tons of people. Yeah. I'm swimming yeah. in this terrible... Yeah. Virus, yeah. I don't even know what I'm doing. Yeah, I had people calling me up, uh, saying you're a hero, yeah, and I'm like, ah, oh, come on, that's that's kind of it, but I'm like, man, I, I really, I'm not, I'm not going to put it at the point of hero, but that's, I, I like, I really got to consider what I'm doing here, like, and what, all your colleagues, what am like I doing, all
0: you guys, you and know,
2: absolutely, you know, these shifts. Where there was so much, you know, separation between us, it was it was odd how we were right there for each other.
1: Yeah. And
2: you know, I'm glad you actually had said something. My my uh, wired, tired brain had, you know, might have left that out, but um, it's it's kind of something that's ingrown within me mm-hmm. to the point where maybe I didn't even need to say it, but to physically say it, I think is is important because it kind of goes. Not necessarily unappreciated, but maybe just un—you know—untold. Yeah. Where that teamwork is is the key.
1: Yeah.
2: Some of the most physically trying times was trying to do tre- chest compressions yeah. on somebody with an N95 on in yeah. full gear, yeah. and you're sweating. Yeah. And you can't breathe. Yeah. And you are physically pounding on this person's yeah. chest to try to obviously bring them back as yeah. best you can. Yeah. And you depend on your team to do each individual job that it is Mm -hmm. because there's so much more that goes to it than just that. And, you know, I remember my, one of my team, one of my nurses grabbing me and saying, you've had enough, you know, and, and they felt like, you know, to to get gross, they felt my greasy arm where I was like, I was like, uh, Oh, uh, yeah. de- I, Oh, I. That, yeah. was my, that was my three minutes of chest yeah. compressions. Right. It felt it's like It's now a marathon. someone else's
0: turn. Yeah. And so
2: that type of teamwork, <sighs> you know, that's an example of, of teamwork that, you know.
0: I love that. That's that, beautiful.
2: That, you know, makes, that made our ICU go and continues to make our ICU go around. Yeah. And it's because of those interactions and those types of things that we start building trust with each other. And if it wasn't there to begin with, with me at least, I can only speak for myself. Well, I I think I can speak for quite a few people in the ICU. That's something that, you know, we've definitely have developed and we feel as though, you know, we've gone through this war zone. Yeah. That, you know, as I had mentioned before, my friends that had gone into war, but you know, you I I felt a little yeah. left behind. Not not anymore.
0: Yeah, you not have your any- own band of brothers.
2: I know exactly. Good, <laughs> well put.
0: <laughs>
2: well put. This in is my
0: the- show. I gotta get a, I gotta get one in. There you go. No, it's perfect. <laughs> Rich, this was such an incredible conversation. I I'm so humbled and and honored that you wanted to share some of these grim details with us. I, we really appreciate your time. I think I, I think it would be appropriate for me to let you go and go go to sleep now, though. <laughs> (laughs) So you can be a good ICU nurse tomorrow.
2: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. No, it's been a pleasure. And, um, you know, thanks for letting me uh, to say all this stuff too, because I feel like it is important that a lot of people hear a different perspective. Yeah. You know, thank you very much, I guess, is really all I have.
0: Huge thanks to Rich for riding that 12-hour shift. Second wind? 12th wind? I don't know how you did it, but I thank you. And thank you for talking so candidly, not only about the ICU pandemic experience, but but about your life. There's certainly the, wow, I didn't know you endured all that aspect that, that I was humbled to hear, but that moment where you redefined failure as the opportunity that led you to do what you realized you actually wanted to do, that hit me like a gut punch. Thank you for revealing that truth while you detailed so many others. That Wasn't Supposed to Happen is produced by Doug Wartell at Spillway Street Studio here in Red Hook, New York. Artwork by Natalie Ranganeshi. Hosted by me, Heather Delamore. If you or someone you know has a story to tell, please reach out to us at Supposed to happen show at gmail.com. I'll never say anything happens for a reason, but it is reason enough to talk about it.
1: Like dolphins, like dolphins can swim. parts together, we can beat them, forever and ever, or we can be heroes, just for one day. Spillway Street.